you have your Bibles with you this morning, which we hope you do, would you open them to Romans chapter 12? We're in the middle of a series called Committed to Worship. We're going to be talking this morning about getting in the game. And I want to set your mind at the outset on this thought that's transmitted through this short little story. William Arnott was a writer who wrote a notable work on the parables of Christ. And it was said of William, and I want you to hear this. It was said of William that his preaching was good. His writing was better. And his living was best of all. Now, I want you to carry that into your life this morning. Maybe you're a high school student. Maybe you're in college, maybe you have a career, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, but what is it that you do with your life? Can it be said of you that the way you live is best of all, it's the clearest testimony of God's grace? You see, several weeks ago, we were looking in Romans chapter 12, and we see that there's a progression that Paul makes. And I want to remind you of that. This isn't a time for your eyes to glaze over. This is actually pretty important. So I want to remind you of this progression so that you'll know where we're at today. The inner circle, do you remember this diagram I gave to you weeks ago? This inner circle made up of three characteristics of a fully committed believer. We looked at that in great detail. And then that expands, Paul expands that circle to include 10 obligations of fully committed believers, 10 obligations, 10 duties that all of us have before in Christ, we have towards the family of God. And we looked at the first two of them before Easter came around, and we saw that those first two were, number one, we need to love each other like we're family. Not like the people in family you don't like, by the way. We, love, we need to love each other like we're family. And secondly, we need to, t- to take the initiative in valuing and communicating the value that other, other people have in our lives. Now let me ask you a question. If you were here and you heard that sermon, did you take it to heart? Well, Pastor Tim, I don't know what you mean by take it to heart. Do I believe it's necessary? Yes. No, what I mean by take it to heart is, did you get it to the heart by applying it, by living it? The way to experience spiritual transformation, don't we all want to know that? How do we change? Countless books have been written on this topic. The way to experience change, spiritual transformation, is to meditate on the Word of God and then immediately apply what God shows us. So how did you love one another in the family of God recently? Did you know that we have a team of ladies that oftentimes starts before the sun even comes up? It continues on during the day, oftentimes after the sun goes down to take care of her this woman and her children, because she's in physical need? Did you know that we have another lady in our church who 
has come alongside regularly a disabled woman's life and cleans her apartment, does her laundry. Why do they do this? It's because they're taking to heart what God says. We have an obligation to love one another like we're family. I could go on. There's so many examples. There's an example of somebody handed me an envelope a while ago. Whatever I had in it, I handed it to the person they asked to give it to. I get an email from that person that says, Pastor Tim, please let that person know that that money covered almost to the exact penny what it cost to get my my car fixed. Unbelievable what God does through his people. We need to love one another. So let me ask you and ask you to think honestly. Have you begun to notice and communicate how important people are in your life. You know, after I preached this message three weeks ago, I'm walking through the church and I'm hearing people say, listen, I've been wanting to tell you this for a long time. And I see people passing notes of encouragement to one another. They're applying the word of God immediately to honor, to value one another, to communicate that. All of us. Not just those to whom it's easy to encourage other people. All of us need to be lifting one another up, convinced of their high value. But we're going to see this morning that Paul goes on. There's ten altogether. We've looked at two. What are the next three obligations that every person in Christ has laid upon them to live out in the family of God? We're going to look at those And then in a few weeks, we're going to look at five ways that we are to love our enemies. Seven ways we're to love the world, five ways to love those who are our enemies. We're going to be confronted this morning, friends, by God's word. And we're going to have to ask ourselves this question. You might want to write it down, but if, if nothing else, put it in your mind, get it to your heart. Do I serve God each and every day? Now... Let me give you a warning. Don't shake your head yes or no yet. Because you've got to understand what the word serve means. And we're going to look at that this morning. Remember verse 1 of chapter 12, the word worship? Do you remember what it meant? We looked at this a long time. Some of you got very annoyed with me because I kept talking about it. Well, I'm going to say it again. The word worship means service. So when we read in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It means it's the only logical service that makes sense. After God's given his son to pay the ransom for our sins, it only makes sense that we live our lives in service to God. That's what that word worship means. And if we're to to fully commit ourselves to God, it's going to result, friends, listen, it's going to result in a life of worship to him, a life of service to him. Now, here's the good news. God gives us two ways this morning, every one of us, to evaluate how I am to serve God and how well I'm doing it. We've got two ways And I'm going to give you a lot of information. We're going to look at it very, very clearly. We're going to see what they are. We're going to actually look at this verse in reverse simply because the main thought in the verse is the last of three phrases. What do I mean? Look at 
verse 11 of chapter 12. Here's what he says. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, phrase number one. Be fervent in spirit, phrase number two. And here's the subject of the verse, serve the Lord. So we are to serve the Lord. How? By not being slothful in zeal. How? By being fervent in the spirit. What on earth does all that mean? Well, here we go. You ready? I hope you have your outlines out. Keep your Bible open. The first thing we're to do, if we're going to look at what it means to serve the Lord, is to listen to the coach. Now, the title of this sermon is Getting in the Game. Very simple. There is absolutely nothing complicated about anything you're going to hear this morning, but it is potentially life-transforming. The first thing he says to us is listen to the coach. Do you remember what Paul's taught us? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, if you would. He says this in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Here it is. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, we learned in verse 3 that God has given us all that we need in the exact measure in order to live out what he's given us to do. Now, that is so big, that is such an important thought that I'm willing to say it again with all of your attention. You ready? Here's what he's saying. God has given us, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have bent our knee and put our faith in the shed blood of Jesus, he's given us everything we need, spiritual gifts, experiences, passions, uh, upbringing, everything you possibly need God has supplied it to us in order to, listen, in order to do what he's asked us to do. In other words, God will never ask us to do anything that he hasn't gifted us and equipped us to do. If you find yourself in a ministry that you're floundering, you're doing poorly in, you don't enjoy it, friends, most likely you're in the wrong ministry. You're not equipped for it. You're not gifted for it. So with discernment, find how you're gifted. Find how you're impassioned and get involved in what God's asked you to do. But that's what verse 3 is talking to us about. So here it is. You ready? If we're going to live out the will of God, by the way, isn't that paramount? Isn't that of utmost importance that we live out God's will? I think I can tell you why I'm saying it's of utmost importance. It's because your life will be miserable and empty and unsatisfying until you begin to live God's will. There's no power of joy available living outside of God's will. So if we're going to live out God's will, serving him, especially, Paul says, in the family of God as church, then we need to know what he says by way of how to serve him. If you read Romans... You're going to understand Paul's mindset. Here it is. You ready? This is alarming. Paul was a slave to the law, and he was held in bondage to sin before he bent his knee to Christ. And the only way of freedom, you got to get this, the only way of freedom for the Apostle Paul, the only avenue, the only escape clause out of the slavery to sin was to be freed by a new master who purchased his freedom 
Now listen, a lot of people don't understand this. Who then became his new master. I don't think that makes sense, Pastor Tim. It will. Jesus paid the ransom price of sin. Amen? We've looked at that in detail the last two weeks. He paid it on the death, on his death on the cross. His shed blood was the price needed to free us from sin. He freed us from the law and the power of sin. And he gave us the power to live in a way that's pleasing to our new master, Jesus Christ. Now, hang in there. You see, if somebody was purchased from a slave owner, if you were a slave and you were purchased from your master, there's only, by the way, three ways to not become a slave. Number one, find out how to save enough money for your own redemption purchase price. Number two, die, which I think is not recommended. And number three, have somebody else that's got money buy you away from that master. That's only three ways to get out of slavery to your, your former master. And so if somebody was purchased from a slave owner, he became the new master's property. Well, Pastor Tim, that doesn't sound right. Paul lived as if he was not his own recognizing that he was now the property of the Lord Jesus Christ and he was to be exclusively his, here it is, slave. Well, now it really doesn't sound right, Pastor Tim, because I know what John 8, 36 says. It says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I would say to you, you're right. That's the words of Jesus. We are free in Christ. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're free from that force of evil that makes us captives and leads us to destruction. But friends, there's a whole other part of that freedom. We're free to live in obedience to Christ who leads his servants into holiness, goodness, and eternal life. It's our new master. We're not free to live to do whatever we want, as if our will is supreme. This is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now, friends, listen. In case you're losing where I'm taking you, all I'm doing is telling you the mindset of Paul behind his proclamation that we are to serve our Lord. Let me tell you a little bit more. What's it mean to serve the Lord? The word serve is the Greek word. You got to get this, douluyo, which means to be a slave. Now, we hear that and we recoil, rightly so, for slavery today and in our recent history was nothing like slavery practiced in the Bible. America's slavery was atrocious. But in first century Rome, slaves were often encouraged to become educated. They often function in high positions like household managers, accountants, tutors, personal secretaries, sea captains, physicians. In fact, when Paul was sent in Acts before the Roman governor Felix, did you know that Felix was himself a slave? And he was freed and put into one of the highest positions in Rome. They can own property, including other slaves. 
Sometimes people would sell themselves as slaves just to pay off their own debts. They could worship, they could marry, they could have families of their own. Now, what I'm about to tell you is the absolute key if you're going to understand Paul's mindset when he says, serve the Lord. Despite the privileges that Rome gave to their slaves, one estimate is 85 to 90% of Roman citizens were slaves, first century. Despite the privileges that Rome gave to these slaves, you got to hear this, you ready? A slave was one who lived without personal will and existed to do the will of his master. That's always been the very central tenet of slavery. And it's not without intention that Paul says to us, serve the Lord. What does the word Lord mean? It's in the Greek, Kyrios. There was a song about this with this title back in the 80s. It means one who is master, one who has absolute ownership power. Friends, this word Lord is the title for Jesus 700 times, and it translates the Old Testament name of God, Jehovah. See, Jesus is our master. If we realize this, we serve the Lord to do his will, not ours, because we belong to him. We fulfill the ministry assignment that he has given us to do. That's the mindset of Paul. That's the mindset he wanted the church at Rome to have. And it's the mindset we're to learn to have ourselves. Friends, let me sum this up. You ready? I got to get this into your heart. You've got to know this if you're going to understand verse 11. The one who was truly free. The one who was truly free is the person set free to serve and be a slave to Jesus Christ. That's true freedom in the Bible. In fact, it is inconceivable that a Christian could possibly live in any other way. It's why Paul gives us no rationale, no argument for why we should become slaves to Jesus. It's stated as an incontrovertible reason. And he gives us two clear ways that we ought to undertake our service to Christ. Number one, or number two in your outline. He says, get up off the bench. Get up off the bench. Look what he says in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now that word slothful, it evokes to me in my mind, the image of a tree, a three-toed sloth hanging in a tree somewhere in South America, that's what it does in my... In fact, I don't think I've ever used this word outside of this morning's sermon. It's not in the Ackley everyday vocabulary. Have you ever seen a sloth? <laughs> Everything about them speaks of misshapen and wrongness. Let me tell you why. They do most things, up, most things upside down. They eat upside down. They sleep an average of 15 hours a day upside down. They even know how to mate and give birth upside down. A little weird to me. This is a sloth. And if they do move, it's slow. In fact, you know why they're slow? The experts tell us they, they're slow because they conserve energy because they are entirely vegetarians. One more reason to eat meat. Friends, <laughs> now we're starting to get an understanding of what slothful... Are you leaving because I said that, <laughs> Katie? 
We're starting to get an understanding now of what this word slothful really means. Here it is. You ready? Slothful means, write it down, please. It means to be slow to act, slow to engage in what one ought to do. Now, that reason that you're slow to engage might be hesitation. It might be laziness. It might be lack of ambition. But slothfulness is the attitude that seeks to get by with as little work, as little inconvenience as possible. It's the same word, friends, that Jesus used in Matthew 25 for the servant who, given one talent by his master, who then went off on a long journey, took that talent, dug a hole, put it in the ground, and covered it back up. And when his master came, he went and got that one talent to return to him. Whereas the other servants invested their talents They did something with their talents. They brought an increase to their talents that their masters had given to them. This one man didn't invest it. He didn't do anything with it so that when the master came back, listen, he said to him, you're a wicked, and here's our word, slothful servant, and he cast him in outer darkness. And Paul warns us, don't be like this man. Now listen, every child of God has been given a talent by our master, Kyrios, Lord Jesus Christ. And that talent is a gift to do the ministry assignment from our Lord. And we are to use them by serving the Lord. Isn't this what Paul says in Colossians 3? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving, there's our word, there's that same word, you are a slave to Christ. Paul emphasizes this point by using contradiction. I want, you to, I want you to know something, and this is just a little insight when you study the Bible. Whenever you see the Bible, use contradiction. Please know that it's emphasizing, it's turning up the light. It wants us to hear something centrally important to our lives. Look what Paul says. Do not be slothful in zeal. You can't get more contradictory than those two terms. And while slothful means hesitating to engage in something worthwhile, zeal, here it is, literally means speed. It's to be ready to spring into action as soon as the need arises with all eagerness. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but there is one sport that I find it laborious and difficult to watch on television, and that is professional tennis. But sometimes, I know some of you like this, I just don't understand you. Sometimes I'm with people who want to watch this. So I found a way to find some meager entertainment in the game. Here's what I do. I watch the ball boys and the ball girls. (laughs) Now, friends, listen, I think being a ball boy in professional tennis is a lot harder than it looks. After all, I've discovered that as I've gotten older, my legs have gotten longer so that my hands don't reach to the ground when I'm running. I mean, some of you might have discovered that. Yesterday, I carry a wheelbarrow of mulch, a little kitty wheelbarrow for James McCarthy, and I pulled the hammy. So I know what it means to grow older, my body just doesn't work anymore. So I'm sure that all those sudden bursts of speed can't be good on your body. Now here's why, this is what I like about the ball boys. 
They stand there with their hands behind their backs, behind both ends of the courts and to the sides. And as soon as that ball hits the net or goes out of bounds, they know what to do and they spring into action. Friends, that's the exact picture that Paul is evoking in our imagery when he says, do not be slothful in zeal. You see a need, you spring into action. But Pastor Tim, nobody asked me to help. I didn't get the bulletin announcement. To not be slothful in zeal says, I'm not waiting to be asked. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to serve. God speaks. He directs us how to serve him. And we are to respond immediately, springing into action. You see, Paul's writing the church at Rome, right? That's a no-brainer. It's called Romans. He's writing to the church at Rome, which has a problem. And here's the problem, or at least part of it. They tried to get by with as little work and as, as little inconvenience as possible. They hesitated, even though God had given every one of them a spiritual gift, even though every one of them had an assignment from God to complete, they hesitated. Even though they were indispensable to the health of that church to accomplish the work of the gospel, they were sitting on the sidelines, not moving when the need arose. And Paul speaks to them, and he's echoed by Peter in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another. There's that word again. Be a slave to one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace by the strength that God himself supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, friends, don't hesitate. Get serving the one who ransomed you and to whom you now belong. But Paul goes on one more time and says, listen, I want you to serve God. I want you to have a mindset of slaves to God because he owns you. And yes, I don't want you to be slothful. I don't want you to sit on the sidelines. I want you to spring into action. But I don't want you to do it out of drudgery. I want you to be fervent in spirit. He wants us to play hard. He says, be fervent in spirit. And if you look up that word fervent in the dictionary, you're going to find the exact same meaning in the Greek that's used here in Romans 12, 11. It's a verb, believe it or not. And it's a verb that means to boil with heat. That's the exact definition, to boil with heat. That's what it means to be fervent in spirit. And our use, commonly, we use it to describe somebody who's had a great intensity of passion. But let me tell you the full picture of what Paul means when he says, be fervent in spirit. Have you ever boiled rice or macaroni on your stove in a pot and walked away only to come back and see that it's boiling so badly that it's actually spilling over the pot? If you've done that, then you've got the perfect imagery in your mind of what it means to be fervent in spirit. It means to boil with such a fervent desire to serve God that it bubbles over into action. It's the type of preaching that Acts says Apollos had, who was fervent in his preaching. It's like our Tony Evans today, if you've ever heard of him. You can't possibly listen to Tony Evans and remain seated still. 
He boils until you boil over and bubble over into action. It's intensity and passion in his preaching. It's directed passion. In fact, one person said the best way to understand this in today's common language is a steam engine, which boils and boils and builds pressure until it can drive that locomotive in the direction it needs to go. See, Paul is telling us, friends, to be passionate, to let it boil in our hearts for God and to let that bubble over in committed, faithful, and excitable service. But some of you might be here this morning and and say to me, Pastor Tim, I'm just not like that. I'm rational. I'm logical. In fact, when you talk about boiling over in spirit, it sounds good from the pulpit, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Friends, there's not one of you this morning that doesn't know what it's like to be passionate about something. Because the day you become passionate about nothing is the day I start working on your memorial service because you're dead. You're passionate about something. And God says, be passionate about me. To the point, make yourself. This isn't let God make you passionate. It's you be fervent in spirit. Let the the spirit of God work in you, but partner with him. Be fervent. Be boiling till it it spills over into redemptive living. Be passionate about me, and I'm going to use you greatly for the kingdom of God. So that we could be like Henry Martin, who was a missionary to India, who once said, God, let me burn out for you. And he did and died before the age of 30, but he left an incredible legacy for Jesus. See, Paul was fervent in spirit. Colossians 1, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul understood what it meant to be fervent in spirit. It was this white, hot, boiling over passion that was missing in the church of Laodicea, which earned for them the scathing remarks of Jesus in Revelation 3. I know your works. You're neither hot or cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God does not delight in passionless Christians. Because they simmer. And they don't spring into action. Now, friends, I am almost done. But I think we're coming to one of the most important parts of the sermon. Are you a servant for God? Do you wake up in the morning and as your feet hit that ground, the very first thought in your mind is, God, you own me. You bought me with your blood. I belong to you. It's my duty. It's my privilege to live and serve you today. Show me what to do and I'm ready to do it. I'll spring into action. That's the goal of Romans 12 is to cultivate that totally committed life, one who has put themselves on the altar of God as a living sacrifice and said, God, I am exclusively yours. Do with me what you will, and I know I will be extraordinarily pleasing in your sight. That's what it means to be a fully committed believer. 
But is that you? Honestly, I don't know your heart. I really don't. But we all know one who does. And friends, listen to me, please. Plead for your heart. If that's not you, make your change today. Live fully for God. There's no other way. He doesn't delight in simmering Christians. And when you get to the end of your life in that same parable from Matthew 25, the servants who invested their talents and brought back a reaping handful of glory for their master, here's what he said to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you hunger to one day come face to face with Christ and him say, well done, good and faithful. Listen, slave. That's what the word means. It's the life I want. Now, Archibald Rutledge was one of America's best outdoor writers. And he once met a man whose dog was just killed in a forest fire. And Rutledge sat down with this man. And this man told him the story about how his dog died heartbroken. The man explained to Rutledge how it happened. I want you to hear this. Because the man worked outdoors, he often took his dog with him. And that particular morning, he left his dog in a clearing and gave him a command to stay and watch over his lunch bucket while he went into the forest. And his faithful friend understood, for that's exactly what he did. You see, a fire started that day. And soon the blaze spread to the spot where his dog had been left, but the dog never moved. He stayed right where he was in perfect obedience to his master's word. In fact, his blackened body was found laying right next to that now burned and seared lunchbox. And with tear-filled eyes, the dog's owner said to Rutledge, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. Friends, that's a totally committed Christian who lives to serve his or her master and doesn't do it out of drudgery and compulsion, but does it because he loves, she loves their master. And so they spring into action and they do it with a fervency that boils till it bubbles over in loving one another. That's what we're called to be in a redemptive community. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I always thank you for that. It just amazes me how powerful your word is. We do nothing tricky in this church, and yet it's growing simply because your word is preached, your word is taught, your word is sung about, your word is lived. Praise to your name, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray that we would learn as proud, stubborn, independent Americans. Learn, Lord, to be a slave for Christ, our Lord, to whom we belong. And Lord, let us get up every morning and let us throw away our self-perceived rights. And let us serve you with a fervency that is ready to spring into action, that boils with a love and a passion that spills over onto other people. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that not one person, including myself, would leave this morning without immediately beginning to apply this. We can be passionate to our God. We can sing to our soul and wake it up. We can serve you with our lives and worship you. And in Jesus' name, amen.